You're listening to The Zealous Podcast with Rocky Snyder. This week we've got Christoph Vies with the Anaheim Ducks in the studio with us. Now, before we get underway, we want to say that we are sponsored by Perform Better. And in this particular episode, you could be the winner of a Perform Better massage gun. So all you have to do is follow us on Instagram, Rocky underscore Snyder. That's S-N-Y-D-E-R. And one of our followers this week will be chosen from the batch. We'll be sending you a massage gun thanks to Perform Better. Now, here's the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I'm Rocky Snyder. And with me this week, we've got Christoph Wies. And he is the assistant strength conditioning coach for the Anaheim Ducks. Now, you know, I'm a San Jose Sharks fan. Was raised with the Bruins, but I switched gears and... The Ducks, they just have our number this season. In fact, when we're recording this right now, we're going against the Ducks again tonight, and it's going to be a different outcome than it was Monday. That's all I got to say, Christoph. So uh, there, there's your warm welcome on to Zealous. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks a lot for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So, so obviously, assistant strength conditioning coach, uh, how many other assistants are on the Ducks right now? It's actually just myself. And then we have a head strength conditioning coach and a director of performance. Wow, fantastic. Now, director of performance and head strength coach, as I understand it, with a lot of pro sports, they're starting to blend those roles in together. And we're kind of losing the title of strength coach itself. So it doesn't surprise me that it's a, a three-man team, so to speak, when it comes to performance and strength conditioning. Uh, but you've got other, other people on the team, other professionals that are supporting you or that are working in network with you. What are the other regular kind of positions that you're constantly communicating with in regards to team conditioning? Yeah, we have a pretty big staff, actually. We have, um, as I said, the three of us, and then we also have sports medicine, which will have two physical therapists, two athletic trainers, and then also we, we work a lot with our minor league team in San Diego, and they have two strength coaches there and some medical there as well. Ah, okay. And uh, just like I'm sure many of the other teams, you are, I won't say plagued with meetings, but you are continually in meetings and, and just doing case study after case study, or in this case, player, uh, player folders and so on. Is that right? Yeah, we have a daily meeting every morning. We meet with those sports medicine guys and we'll go through our injured guys or any guys that are popping up that could be a worry. And so we'll go through with those guys and what the plan is for them in the gym and what the plan is for them on the ice as well as in the training room as well. So I talked to some friends that are strength conditioning coaches for the NFL teams and they continually say that football is a sport that your, your entire team is injured and it's just trying to keep the injuries at bay or address them so they can keep on playing. But there is not one player that takes the field and that is injury or pain-free. Uh, are, are you, can you say the same thing with the NHL or, I mean, what's that like? I'd say, I think NFL is a little more, but we're definitely right under there for sure compared to other sports. We definitely have, um, you know, you're, your dents and bruises every once in a while from the games. And especially we play pretty much every other day, which is different from the NFL where they only play once a week. Um, so yeah, they definitely add up over the course of the season. Yeah. But basically you're putting football players on skates and telling them to go hard into the boards or against somebody else. And, and uh, that's, that's gotta take its toll. So how do you mitigate the, the, uh, 
injury like the likelihood of injury with your players uh, obviously you've got the physical therapy but when it comes to strength conditioning what are the go-to things that you're constantly going to to try to keep the injuries at bay yeah that's a good question in the off season we definitely try to build them up as best we can to get ready for the entire season so off season is really where most of our work gets done then in season especially this year with it being so jam-packed with a shortened season we actually give the guys quite a bit of autonomy. And so if they're just beat up from the game and they're not feeling it, we're not going to make them do a whole lift or anything like that. We'll give them more of a mobility and a recovery day. And we'll just try to keep going to the next game. Cause it, like I said, it's just not a usual season this year. So we, we've made some changes. Yeah. Now, speaking of the unusual season, the one thing that I think is probably working in your favor, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're grouping up, games with the same team just like baseball does you know we you've got a a two-game series with the sharks this week monday and wednesday you played them last week so it's it's it seems like that's probably going to be nice so that your players aren't going to be losing sleep with so much traveling would that be accurate yeah 100 percent. that's been great and actually they, they want to keep it that way but you know unfortunately that's not up to us uh, but we'll definitely it's been helping us a lot and it, you know, you don't have those red eye flights right after the games anymore. And there's definitely a lot more rest and recovery this year. And I know it's kind of out there in, in outfield, but uh, the, the city, of course, being Anaheim and the average temperature year round, I think is about 75 degrees uh, compared to, say, Winnipeg or any of the northern reaches. Do you notice any kind of like increase in likelihood of injury just because of the climate your players are in? Like, is there reduced because you're in warmer regions? I know it's out there. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it personally. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Um, I personally haven't seen it, but we do try to do a lot of things outside. We try to do some warm-ups and some lifts and things outside and get, make sure the guys get a little bit more sun. Yeah, I just kind of jokingly say when people ask me about, you know, what should I ice something or should I put heat on it? I say, well, when people retire, they don't go up to Alaska. They go to the Palm Desert or to Florida where everything's nice and warm and joints feel really good. So um, I'm just kind of kind of putting that off to the side going, I wonder if there's anything. So now that I bring it up, it's going to be in the back of your head. And then you can come back to me a little, little later date and say, oh, yeah, we've got the advantage because we're in warm, sunny California. Now, Speaking of warm, sunny California, though, you were raised in Riverside. You're a Southern California boy. And as far as I know, ponds don't freeze like they did in Boston, where I grew up. So how the heck did you get into hockey? Yeah, it's it was a bit of homecoming for me coming back here since this is the team I grew up with and used to go watch as a child. And actually, they're the reasons why I have contact lenses now because I went to the game. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, do you see what's happening? I was like, I can't see a thing. <laughs> I couldn't see what was, I couldn't see the puck or anything. And so then we realized I needed glasses. And so I can thank the team for that. But, um, yeah, it's, to be honest, hockey wasn't a sport that I played. Uh, my cousins played it. And then I was actually born in Switzerland. So I had some family members that played it too. But I never played it myself. So this was actually my first experience really diving in with hockey. Oh, interesting. But, but you're not... Uh, you're not foreigner to being on the ice necessarily when it comes to coaching conditioning, because as you told me before the show, you were actually with the uh, national Olympic team for speed skating, getting ready for the Olympics not too long ago. 
Yeah, so I worked with the Chinese speed skating team, and they're some of the top in the world, especially for short track speed skating. Um, so I was working with them before I got the call to come here. And how does that carry over? I'm really curious. I mean, obviously, speed skating, it, the NHL players can't get up to their maximal velocity just because of the length of the, the rink itself. But we're still talking about, you know, four or five step sprint on ice. It, it's got to carry over f- f- with your experience with the speed skating team. What did you notice being the most relevant in your background with the speed skating team coming to the NHL? Yeah, I think it's there's a lot of similarities for sure, um, especially a lot of the injuries are the same, which we can touch on later. But the in terms of training, you know, same type of training, we did squats, a lot of power work, things like that. Um, I think with NHL, with the hockey guys, we're working a little bit more just to make them robust, um, just to get through that whole season. Whereas a speed skating, there's no contact or anything. So we're just trying to make them as fast as possible. So there are some differences, but um, the injuries are very similar. Okay, that's that's a really great point about contact. So how do you prepare players for, for contact? Like in terms of strength, conditioning and so on, are there things that you're doing in the weight room to prepare them or is it on the field or, or well, obviously on the ice, but off, off ice training, how does that, how, how do you get them prepared for contact? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing crazy, just your general strength and conditioning programs. You know, we squat, we dumbbell bench, just things like that, just to make them more robust overall and um, just stronger in general. And so what are, when it comes to the complex lifts, what are your go-tos? You already mentioned squats. Yeah. So we squat, um, trap bar deadlifts, uh, dumbbell bench. We actually don't do any Olympic lifts. We'll do some if the guys want for some power before the game. We'll have them do some light snatches or things like that just for more explosiveness for a warm-up. Uh, we actually, in the offseason, we'll do some hand cleans, but for the most part, we're not very much, we're not really Olympic-based. We do a lot more um, trap bar jumps, box jumps, things like that. Well, both of us having a background in Olympic weightlifting, that must be kind of like, uh, oh, just let me at them kind of thing. I'd I'd love to give them a little clean and jerk action. But I imagine kettlebells have become infused a little bit into the training regimen. Yeah, we'll definitely throw some kettlebell swings in there and things like that for sure. And with with skating down the ice, obviously, motion is all about oppositional movement. The pelvis rotating in one direction, ribs rotating the opposite. So and all the complex lifts are very sagittal biased and bilateral for that matter. But when it comes to going down the ice, we're talking about contralateral movement, one leg moving forward, the other moving back, all this oppositional action. So how do you address that in the weight room too? We do a lot of unilateral work as well. So we'll do uh, rear elevated split squats, things like that, and also lateral lunges, lateral work. And so we really try to tackle that using um, those two exercises and similar ones. And then uh, when it comes to using slide boards, is that something that you do in the gym setting or is that just a tool that uh, you stay away from because they have enough time on ice? Yeah, it's more the latter. We don't really touch it. Um, Sometimes in the training room, they'll use it a little bit more uh, for return to play, but we don't really use too much slide board in our training. Okay. You're talking return to play, meaning that you've got some athletes that were injured. They're on the injured reserve list or whatever the case is, and they're getting ready to back to get back into the game. What kind of protocol do you, what's your role in return to play compared to say the physical therapist? 
Yeah, so that's actually one of my biggest roles with the team is when the team travels and I'll stay back with whoever injured. And I learned a lot during my time. I was at a UC Riverside for a bit and I learned there about how to train athletes with injuries. And at this point, I was just a young intern. I didn't really understand, you know, that what this, I remember this track athlete came in and she came in with crutches. I'm like, well, what are we going to do with her? You know? And so then she sits down and the strength coach tells me, he's like, yeah, you're going to bring all the weights to her. She's going to do her upper body lift just right here. And so I was like, okay. So then, you know, we did that. And then we also worked on the opposite leg, the healthy leg a little bit. And so I've been able to carry a lot of that over here with our guys that are injured. And so I just, if it's a lower body injury, I'll work with their upper body or their healthy leg. And then we'll just do as much as we can um, that's possible in the gym that we're allowed to do. And meanwhile, the affected area is being dealt with primarily with the physical therapist. Exactly. And then the physical therapist will get to a point where, okay, we can integrate some loading into it or some different type of movement, some dynamic action. And here's what I want you to do. Or how, how does it work communicating with the PT and, and where does that carry over or when the baton, when, when you switch over and hands it to you, what does that look like? Yeah, just like that. PTs tell us when they're ready to start loading, we, we start gradually loading them in the weight room, getting them ready before they go back on the ice and um, they start doing their regular lifts and then they're good to go and get back out there. So there must be some type of protocol, a screening process or assessment where you verify, okay, this guy's ready to get back out on the ice. What, what does that look like? For us, it's not too much. Honestly, the, the sports men staff do a great job of doing all the assessment and screening. And so we just try to assist for the most part with the return to play for it from the strength side of it. Um, and they usually have the final say of where they're at and we'll do some things uh, like force plates and things like that to, from our end, from a performance standpoint, but from a just injury standpoint about when they're ready is more up to them. Well, it, it uh, almost never fails. The, the term force plate has become so commonplace with my conversations here with all the strength coaches and the major leagues. Uh, so I, and then therefore my question is going to be the same also. What do you use the force plate for? What are the specific things you do with it? Yeah, the, the biggest thing is for that return to play uh, I would aspect, I would say it's all our guys. We have baselines for everybody. Then if they get injured, we put them back on there and then we eventually, you know, try to get them back to that baseline and build them back up. And that's the biggest use we've had for them, especially as I keep, and I keep repeating myself, but the season's so jam packed. It's not, we can't use it as much as we would like because um, we're playing every other day and things like that. So for us this year, especially, it's been mainly a return to play um, protocol. So let's say that they're doing some type of squat on the force plate. And you're noticing that their load is not so balanced and they are not loading very well into the injured leg. At what percentage is there kind of like a, a, a level in which you're okay with, or are you not looking at the force plate results in that manner? We do to an extent, uh, we have dual force plates, so we can see the asymmetry oh. between left and right. Um, so it also depends on their baseline where they were before, you know, so if they were a lot stronger on the right to begin with, like usually we'll find that in the baseline to begin with and then focus on that and that point already, right? On trying to make them more the same in both legs. Um, and so ideally we want them to do the same, but we understand that sometimes asymmetries do happen. 
Gotcha. So let's say that you find us asymmetries because every single athlete is going to have them. No one's perfectly balanced, but to what degree these asymmetries are appearing, that's a different story. Uh, let's say somebody has some fairly significant discrepancies between left and right in terms of force or power production. How do you address that? Do you address it primarily with bilateral movements? Do you address it by working on the less dominant limb, trying to get that up to speed or what's, what's your approach? Yeah, so for my personal approach, if I see a player with an asymmetry, I'll usually have them do, I'll start with the bad leg first. So if we're doing a rear foot elevated split squat, I'll have them do the, the one that's weaker. I'll have them do, start with that one. And then I'll also add, you know, two reps or add a set, an extra set for that leg. Gotcha. And when it comes to, you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, injury sites and so on, there are common injury sites that keep popping up. And what are the ones that you, you commonly deal with and, and how do you address them? Yeah, the, the ones we see the most, I would say are definitely around just the hip in general. So groin would be the first one and then follow that up with around the hip flexors. And then also with some of the older guys, you might have some back issues creeping in and things like that. And is that because they never truly achieve extension through the hip or they don't have proper abduction that the hip flexors and groin are suffering? What, what do you attribute the, the common kind of injury from? Yeah, it comes down to a couple of things. I mean, just the chronic load of the whole season can add to it. And then also the ice makes a difference too. A lot of places, ice isn't, isn't as great. So they have to work and skate a lot harder because it's not as smooth and it's, it's a lot harder work skating at certain rinks. And so you'll, um, you'll hear the guys complain a little bit after saying that, yeah, the ice is really rough today and they might feel those areas a little bit more. Gotcha. Now I see hockey as being one of the ultimate interval training competitions or sports there is because of the amount of, of um, substitutions or, or uh, transfers on and off the ice and it's all or nothing. You go from sitting on the bench to sprinting uh, in multiple directions. So that extreme shift of, of no activity to extreme activity has got to take its toll. Um, how do you prepare your team and the players for such extreme, obviously we've got high intensity interval training, but are there certain things that you're, you're staying away from things that you're focusing on when it comes to that? Yeah. I mean, we do a lot of work on the bikes, the assault bike and the wall bikes. We'll do a lot of interval training on there, especially like shorter bursts or around like 45 seconds of what, you know, their shift lengths would usually be things like that. So I would say most of our interval stuff would come from the bikes. And this is now during the start of the season, or is this leading up to the season and building a base? When do you, if you do taper, I imagine it's as the games progress, but uh, as the season moves forward right now, what's that looking like in terms of say interval and uh, the intensity level? Yeah. To be honest, right now, they're getting enough of it on the ice with games and practices that we don't really need to do much in the weight room. That's definitely more of a off-season, maybe at the beginning of the season type thing, but now we're, we're rolling and we're going. So mainly mobility drills in, in the workout room, and how do you determine what areas 
that you want to target with an individual player because everyone's going to have different map patterns of movement. You're going to see different forms of skating. So therefore, we're going to be generating force in different areas, creating restrictions one place and opening up areas of, of compensatory motions in another. How do you target those areas? Yeah, I mean, it comes down, I want to say it comes down to the age of the guy too. We have a wide age range of 18 all the way to 40. Yeah. So that makes a big difference. And so with our younger guys, we can do a lot more with them. And then with the older guys, we'll focus more on, like you were saying before, the mobility and the core and things like that. Um, but with the younger guys, you know, they're, they're still fresh and we can still do some, some good things with them in the weight room. Okay. So here's, here's something that keeps coming back to me too, is that, uh, with the age of the player, granted, we've got highly repetitive, very forceful production out of the body over years and years and years. Um, and their programs are going to get less intense because they're trying to maintain into their later period of their career. But what has changed with the rookies and the early athletes, though, the ones that are just fresh into the NHL? so that you don't have to necessarily do that later on. I guess I'm talking like long-term athletic development in the career span of an NHL player. I, it's, it's so common that you, because they're young bucks and they're indestructible, we just beat the living crap out of them in the early years and, and they are resilient to it, but somewhere down the road, you can't do that anymore. Have, have you guys kind of addressed that at all? Yeah, I feel like it definitely comes down to just being progressive and doing it gradually. Uh, with with our young guys, we're not killing them. We'll just do some extra hypertrophy work or things like that with them that they need. Um, obviously, the older guys aren't going to need hypertrophy work at this point. So it'll be more things like that than actually just a whole, you know, intense weight room session. Certainly, certainly. And then uh, where does their their uh, their rest and fueling and hydration come into play with you guys as strength and conditioning coordinators or coaches? Who do you work with when it comes to those elements? Yeah, we have a nutritionist and so she helps as well. And then we'll do, we'll do some of the nutrition from our end, but then she does mainly the, the meals and the recovery type things. We big thing for us is we'll do like on a game day for me, I'll do uh, like electrolyte drinks for the guys before and during the game. And then after the game, I'll have protein shakes ready for the guys as for recovery. All right. That's yeah, that's essential. I'm sure. But during the games, are you doing, you're doing electrolytes throughout the three periods or is that just prior to the game? And then it's, it's up to, water. it's up to the guys. Some guys like it before, some guys like to have it during, um, I'll just make a whole, you know, box of them and just have them all in their, in their refrigerator. And then they grab them as they go. Um, so it really depends on each guy and how, what his routine is. And what's the biggest surprise coming on as assistant strength conditioning coach for the Anaheim Ducks? What's, what's the one thing that you didn't see coming that you're like, oh, I had no idea this was going to be one of my roles? I haven't, I don't think I've been too surprised by anything at this point. I have learned a lot more of the science aspect, um, just some of the tools that we're using, which has been a good exposure and a good opportunity for me. But other than that, everything's been as I would, as I was expecting it to be. When you say science, what uh, if you could share? If it's not, uh, if it's not secret kind of squirrel stuff, what is the, what's the kind of science stuff that you guys are doing? Yeah, it's nothing crazy. I mean, like we touched on the force plates before, and then just GPS tracking units, things like that. So nothing that 
you know, anybody else isn't doing, but it's just the general, like, I didn't get a lot of exposure of that in my time in China, um, just because they have more of an old school way of thinking. So it was just a good opportunity for me to get some more of that experience under my belt. When you say old school way of thinking, what do you mean? They, they're not, they're not big on technology. Like they have their methods that worked and even they've won enough gold medals to pr prove that it works. And so sometimes they're wary about the new technology coming in. Um, sometimes they'll buy any technology, but other times it's also, they're not huge fans of new things. So it, um, I guess that's my, that's what I mean by old school way of thinking. And well, I imagine there's a, a few that fall in that category when it comes to strength conditioning around the NHL as well. But do you see there being more of a trend of accepting new tech or just new modalities within the NHL? Yeah, I think so. I've heard a lot of other coaches using it as well. And I think at the end of the day, we have to remember it's a tool. You know, it's not going to give us the magic answer and everything, but we just need to use it as a tool as with, in conjunction with everything else that we're doing. And I think that's the big thing is not to just collect to collect data, but actually collect it and analyze it and see what we can use it for. Now, with the NFL, they've got the combine. When it comes to NHL draft time, what are you guys doing? So I, unfortunately, I can't, I don't have an answer for this question because of COVID canceled the last combine. <laughs> so I actually haven't been exposed to it. Um, as far as I know, we go there and we, you know, administer the test for the, for the new guys coming in, but I actually haven't experienced it yet myself. Gotcha. Now we've got a new team coming into the league coming in July, the Seattle Kraken. And as I understand it, they can pick from all the different teams in the league to help develop them. Um, how does it work with the strength and conditioning world? Like in terms of the coaches, uh, are you, do you communicate with the other strength conditioning coaches in the NFL? Is there some kind of a collaborative or uh, organization like a, a, not a union so much as, as, as maybe just a think tank? Yeah. Mike, Mike Potenza set um, a strength and conditioning group up for all the NHL strength coaches. I don't, know all of them personally myself i know a couple of the guys in the league and it's it's definitely more camaraderie than a competition for sure and so um yeah they're they're great guys and we'll discuss different things and reach out and talk about different training methods and technologies and things like that so it's a, it's a good group of guys so like you say we've got a condensed season and uh we've got what 60 is it how many how many games are coming up for the season we, this year we had about 56. 56. All right. 56. And then playoffs begin May, June into maybe as late as July 9th. Uh, what, what happens after July 9th, like July 10th, what's your role as a strength conditioning coach? Yeah, we just, we get the off season programs up and running. Uh, we make those before that time, obviously have everything ready to go. And then once that day hits, we'll just start going with the guys and getting ready for next season. So that means, though, that a lot of these guys are going to go back to wherever they they typically are. Um, maybe they live around the Anaheim area, but some are going to be traveling. So do you have to interview every player, or find out what their offseason is looking like in order to create a program for them? Yeah, we talk about um, what their plans are, if they're going to go home. A lot of people, a lot of the guys actually have trainers at home, which is fine. You know, it's always good to get different exposure and different training methods. The biggest thing we do is we tell them what we see they need to improve on. And we let their trainers know that 
you know, they need to improve on this. However you want to do it is up to you. But when they come back for training camp, like, you know, we need to see an improvement from there. So we check in with them and see how they're doing, but we let them do the training as long as by the time training camp rolls around, they're ready to go. Do you have some type of postseason assessment that you will repeat when the season gets into more like preseason? So you know what their baseline was when they left for that year and where they're coming back to? So I can partially answer that question because last season and so abruptly, we weren't able to do anything because it just stopped. Um, and But yeah, usually we would have a training camp uh, testing day where we go through different series of tests, but I'm not, um, I can't speak on the postseason yet. No worries. No worries. Uh, so I'm going to change gears a little bit. Uh, it's, it's a fast paced sport and it's got a, quite a demand for eye-hand coordination. So we've spoken about resistance training, loading the body with complex and unilateral lifts, spoken about interval training and keeping up cardiovascular uh, fitness, lactic threshold tolerance, and so on. But what about reaction and reflexes? What kind of components, aside from just practice, do you guys incorporate into a training program, if any? Yeah, to be honest, we don't use that much. Uh, we don't do too much reaction. We'll do We'll do some with like change of direction things, um, but for the most part, we don't really do it too much. Do you know if there's, uh, is, is that just because you feel like it's um, the said principle, you know, specific adaptation to impose demand or they're out on their ice and to, if they don't have it, they're not going to have it. They, they better have it, that kind of thing. Yeah, at this level, it, you know, it could be possible. I just, I don't have anything against it personally, but we just don't have it much in our, in our program. And not to put you under the microscope or put you under on the hot seat, but are there things that you would be encouraged to incorporate now that are not part of the program? No, we, um, so my bosses and I all came from P3, which is a gym up in Santa Barbara originally. And so they have the same training philosophy that they had up there. And so that's the same one I learned. So it was actually a really nice, pretty seamless um, start and like get together because it's, we had the same philosophy. We were on the same page with things. So of course there's minor things that, you know, people would do differently, but I think for the most part, we're always on the same page, which makes it nice. Yeah. Now, uh, when it comes to taping is that's not, is that in your role or is that more physical therapy or like KT taping? No, it's uh yeah, it's more for the sportsmen. Okay. And where is that gray zone between sportsmen and strength and conditioning, where, what are the elements that tend to overlap or interweave? Or is it just so well-defined that it's delineated and you're like, we don't do that, go over there and see them? I think it just depends. I mean, we have really good communication. And so if, you know, obviously we, we talked about before, the rehab happens in the training room and then we do the, the what we can out in the gym. But I'd say for the most part, we'll do mobility and stretching and foam rolling and other soft tissue work like that um, from our end. But if it's anything dealing with an injury and stuff like that, they handle that. How often is it that the coaching staff, uh, like head coach or assistant coach of the team will come into the realm of strength conditioning and say, look, this player just needs more strength or they are getting gassed and he's not going to last very long. We need more endurance. Is that something that 
occurs? Is there a meeting amongst all the coaching staff where they say, this is what this person needs? Does that happen? Yeah, I think it happens from both ends. Like we'll ask them what they see and what they think the athletes need. And then they'll come to us and if notice something and it's, we have good communication with the coaches and we work on a plan and come up with what we think is best for them and, you know, work with them on that. All right. So you've had experience with being an Olympic coach and now in the NHL, I'm not going to ask which one you like better necessarily, but in terms of future directions, could you see yourself moving up the ranks in the NHL? Are there sports that really create a little bit more kind of excitement toward you or like, Oh, let me get my hands on those type of athletes. Or are you, you happy with where you are? Yeah. I mean, when I first, when I was in college studying to be, to do strength and conditioning. And when I first got into it, I always wanted to do college football. And that was always my big, like, that's what I wanted to do. As my career went on, I noticed a lot of other sports and I really liked the settings I've been in. And I, when I was with the Chinese weightlifting team, when I was done, I realized that that was a goal that I never knew I had. And so I was really happy I did that. And it was like a great experience, great opportunity. And, um, same thing here. It's like, I, you know, it's been great here and I definitely want to move up and, but I kind of just let the road take me and see where we go next. Fantastic. Well, uh, I'm sure you're going to go in whatever direction you want or, or the universe will decide a really good path for you. So curious, you know, for those that are really great coaches, they never stop learning. And I'm, I'm just kind of wondering what are you learning these days? What do you, what do you, uh, what, what paths are you following down, whether it's in the world of strength conditioning or outside of that, who are the mentors in your life and, and what courses are you taking? Yeah, I think COVID was actually a good time for me. I know for a lot of people it was unfortunate, but I, I was lucky with it. And it gave me a lot of time to, you know, study new things and learn new things. And especially with all the online seminars and conferences that were going on, and I dug in a lot, as I mentioned before, into those four plates and learning more about that. And then also some velocity-based training, which we use here a little bit for um, trap bar jumps and things like that. But I use it a lot more in my own training. And so hopefully I can carry that over to the team once um, I keep learning and having a better grasp of that. All right. Now, when you say velocity-based training, we're not talking about how fast somebody can run. We're talking about the speed of the bar path, right? The, how how the, the tempo that you're maintaining during a lift. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so what are you learning about velocity-based training? Yeah, just learning the different, like, the two main things I really like about it is, one, you can train exactly in the zone that you need to be training in. And so, like, we're working on power, but then the guy is a lot lower at his velocity than he should be. We'll take some weight off and then, you know, make sure that he's hitting the right velocity zones that he, that we want him to be in. And then the second thing is just having that cutoff that when they're pretty much more than 10% or less than 10%, I should say of where they need to be, we'll just cut the rep or cut the set. And then, um, so just having those velocity cutoffs are good as well. And are you using cameras or force plates? How do you determine velocity? Yeah, we'll use a, uh, a transducer and then just hook that up with the iPad and go from there. Excellent. What lifts are you uh, primarily using velocity-based training with? So, yeah, for myself personally, I'm using it for squat and for bench press. And then as I'm getting more comfortable with it, I'll start throwing it into more Olympic lifting and going from there. 
And so this determines when you're, like you say, you're in the zone. So you've noticed gains or increases in your RMs. Yeah, no, it's been great for me. It's it really, and it also, it's good motivation because it knows where I need to hit. Whereas like, if I don't have that, I mean, you can still get a good workout in, but if I know I'm supposed to hit a certain velocity, then there's a lot more, you know, oomph behind that, behind the rep. And you have a, you have a display showing your velocity right there in real time. Yeah. Yeah. So you try and target that every time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And are you, so sometimes somebody will come in and they feel like they're just ready to work out, but their body is having other plans. Like they are, their resting heart rate is high. Their sympathetic state is, is heightened and they're not in a place to actually, they're not in the zone, but their brain is saying they are. So this you know, velocity-based training seems to be a nice way to, to bring a little bit more objectivity to a person when, when training, correct? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's great for that. I mean, cause there's no point in having someone, you know, go through a workout if they're feeling like that. Right. I mean, obviously we're in the real world, so there's going to be days where we're not feeling well, you didn't get great sleep. But what I like about velocity based training is like, if that's the case, then we know we need to lower the weight that day to hit those velocity zones. Yeah. So no matter what, you're going to find the proper load for that velocity. Yeah, exactly. And therefore most likely reduce the, the, the likelihood of overtraining and therefore reduce the likelihood of injury. Yeah, I think exactly. You hit it right on the head. I think it's a great tool for that. And it's, you know, it definitely helps with overtraining. And then uh, overall, I think it's great. I mean, nothing's perfect, but I'm a big fan of it. That's great. And uh, just curious, the, the screening processes you use, the assessment tools, what are the standouts for you guys when it comes to determining proper movements for your players? In terms of I mean, off-season testing? Yeah, yeah, off-season or yeah, even do you, do you have any type of, uh, I'm, I, you know, movement screen is, is kind of the coined term these days, but what kind of assessments are you, what kind of protocols do you do to determine you know, the, the program design for your players? Yeah, so as we touched on before, most sports med do most of our assessment and movement screen. From a performance standpoint, we do, um, like I said, the four spikes and a couple other things in the gym. Um, but they do a great job of handling all the movement assessments for us. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it, there's not necessarily a joint by joint kind of approach that you guys are doing. It's more sports med that takes care of that. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, obviously, to me, we're always assessing when someone's doing a squat or anything, right? So we'll see if someone's in ankle mobility is limited and things like that. Um, but for the assessment themselves, they're done by sports med and then they'll communicate with us what they found and what they're seeing as well. So let's just take uh, yeah, the squat, for instance, and if they don't have as much dorsiflexion in their left ankle, or you're seeing that the pelvis is rotating to the right as they descend, or there's that winking going on at the bottom, what are some of the approaches? What are some of the tools that you use here? Are you using uh, resistance bands like RNT to draw them into their their mistakes to pull to, to kind of wake things up to pull them away from that or what what strategies do you guys use yeah it's it's really on an individual basis for me um you know sometimes if someone has a pretty bad hip shift or something like that i might use a resistance in that situation but it really comes down to the athlete and what you know different things work for different people so we tried a couple different things and but i don't want to say we're you know only doing one thing with you know when we see a deficiency here Okay, 
last question. I've peppered you with so many and you just keep coming back like a Gatlin gun. So I appreciate that. But you got players that are all laced up in their shoes and all the way up past their ankles. There's 33 joints in the foot and, uh, and 26 bones. Those things were meant to move all over the place and they're balancing on a single metal blade. Like what carryover does, do you do or do you see in regards to the weight room, uh, are you doing anything to kind of address the fact that a large part of movement when they're on the ice is kind of hampered down? Do you do any kind of foot mobilization? Do you do any kind of um, foot mobs, ankle mobs? When it comes to the lower regions, how do you address that? Yeah, I'd say our main thing for that specifically would be our Delos machine. Which What's that? It's... Um, it's a machine and you just have, you have, it's kind of like balance training where you step on and then it's a, it's a wobble board more or less. And yeah. so it goes left and right, forward and back. And um, we, we can do a lot of different training on that. All right. And, but obviously not, you're not necessarily going to try and load them on that. Are you? No, no, no. It's um, yeah, no, it's done without just body weight. No. Or for proprioceptive mobility, that kind of balance and all that. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. You got a lot of fun tools. I'm kind of jealous. I'd like to be a fly on the wall in your facility for sure. All right, Christoph, I only stand five foot one, but I'm going to try and be bigger than that. I'm going to wish you luck tonight against the Sharks. And by the time this airs, we'll know who came out the victor, at least tonight. Uh, but this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sitting down and chatting with me all about strength conditioning, whether it's in the NFL, NHL, or, or the Olympics. Uh, and like I say, no matter where you go, I'm sure there's going to be success in your path. So uh, thanks for taking the time out of your day. I know you've got a lot of things going on and, and I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. It was fun. Well, thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Zealous Podcast. Thank you, Christoph Wies and the Anaheim Ducks for coming on this week and explaining a little bit more about what they're doing to keep their athletes on top of their game. And don't forget, follow us on Instagram, Rocky underscore Snyder. And this week, you could get yourself a Perform Better Massager. The first one to follow me, I'll pick that name out of the hat and send it on your way. So take care for now, and we'll see you next week.